My name is Cheryl Ann, and I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> it's a real pleasure to be here in Minnesota. I've only flown into Minnesota and quickly taken another plane and left, and I have just had the most wonderful Memorial Day here. I was greeted by Brenda with a teary smile, and since that time I have been hosted around by Terry and Don and Kathy and Chuck and numerous other people. And Ken, I want to thank you for inviting me in the committee, for asking me to be here and to feel the love that comes from AA in Minnesota. Thank you so much. I love Memorial Days because this is when I had my last drunk. I'm sober June 1st, 1977, so it'll be 11 years this Tuesday. <laughs> my last drunk wasn't my worst drunk, but it was on Memorial Day, but my worst drunk was on Memorial Day somewhere out in uh, Nantucket Harbor in, uh, near Nantucket in Massachusetts. And I can remember coming back, it was a three-day cruise for a sailboat race to Nantucket from Hyannisport. And I was drunk every single minute of those three days. And coming back on board this wonderful 60-foot boat, I was in the salon on the couch and I was so sick, I couldn't even get to the head because the weather was so bad. I was green, I was sick, I was mourned, I was, I was just filled with guilt, filled with everything because Memorial Day had turned about again to be the pits, just the pits. So when I celebrate 11, this is my 11th, I guess, I, people, I never know how to do those things. I get confused. It's 10 or 11 that I'm sober. And I just celebrate it with such enthusiasm, knowing that God gave me this, this wonderful gift to be sober and to know what it's all about and to have three days where I don't have to wake up on Tuesday morning and say, why am I alive? So I'm grateful to be here with you, 5,130 recovering people. Isn't that terrific? The strength that's in this room, can you feel that strength connected to one another? It's fabulous. It's just incredible. Uh, today, Nell Wing spoke. Nell Wing was uh, Bill's secretary and the archivist for Alcoholics Anonymous for 36 years, and really she hasn't retired. As I said, she's rotated. And uh, to listen to her, to listen to her history, as she called it, her seven first days at, at the General Service Office was was wonderful. Just wonderful to get to know what it was like back then in the 40s and 50s, and to know Bill Wilson through Nell Wing. Um, I want to uh, tell a little story first. This is a very true story, by the way, and it's a story about people pleasers. I, I don't know if you are. <laughs> I know I am. And this story is about an AA gal. And she had this neighbor that was just giving her all kinds of problems. And so, you know, being a people pleaser, she just stayed out of her way because she just didn't want a confrontation. She just didn't want problems with this gal. So one day she came home from work, and there was her German shepherd at the front door with this rabbit in its mouth. It was the woman's rabbit from next door. She went, oh, my Lord, what am I going to do? She grabbed the rabbit out of the dog's mouth. She ran into the kitchen, washed the rabbit all off, got her blow dryer, blew it dry, snuck next door, put it into the hutch. She went into her house. About 20 minutes later, she hears all this screaming going on. So, as the big book says, are we actors and actresses? She went out to the backyard and said, is there something wrong? And the woman next door said, the rabbit, it's in the hutch. She said, yes, the rabbit's in the hutch. And the woman said, I buried that rabbit two days ago. 
Can you identify? Do we go to any lengths? <laughs> I, um, I was uh, born and raised in uh, a town called Lowell, Massachusetts, which is north of Boston. And I grew up in an alcoholic home and uh, my mother was the alcoholic and my father came from, uh, I'm, I'm sure it was a dysfunctional family, and uh, they tended to be very pious. And here was this man who uh, came from all this piety and had tremendous reserve and, and very formal manners that married my mother who was a wild hellion. And uh, so I came from this dichotomy in my house of uh, uh, tremendous uh, parties and lots of good times and yet there was a lot of discipline and a lot of authority and growing up I felt there was not any love whatsoever. I believe that uh, uh, I, I have had alcoholism, the ism, since the time I was born. I, I, I believe that. That's my own personal belief about that. For me, we're all different. And my, uh, when I was 19, I decided that uh, I had had enough of this home life and that uh, I was going to run away. I was not drinking. I like to talk about alcohol and alcoholism because the ism came before I even put the alcohol in my, in my body. And so when I was 19, I was attending an all-girls Catholic college in New Hampshire. And I had, was taking a course on apologetics, which is about religion. And a priest was teaching that class. And he said that with God, we must trust God. And at that moment, everything in my life just broke. It just broke. I had been the perfect child. I had been, uh, my, mother's a re my mother's a recovered alcoholic, and when she did her ninth step with me, she said that if she could have polished the bottom of my shoe, she would have. So I came from that type of home, and uh, I just was I didn't know who I was. I was so lost. I was so lost about being everything that everybody wanted me to be, including myself. I was a chameleon. And so when uh, this priest said that, and I, I ran, I said to him, I said, Father, I said, I don't believe in God. And he said, but Cheryl Ann, he said, you know, God is, God is with you. God is, God is trust and God is faith. And I said, I don't have faith. He said, well, what do you have faith? I said, I have faith in myself. I said, I can, I can only have faith in things that I see, things that I can hold in my hand. I don't have faith that something that's ethereal and I can't even see and that I don't feel that's working in my life. And so with this attitude of belligerence and intolerance towards the school that I was attending, and then I went home and I packed up and I ran away from home, not even telling my mother and father. I left a little note. Now, I was 19 years of age, and that may seem like a grown-up girl, but I was grown up in many ways because I looked all right on the outside, but I was very, very immature and had no self-worth and low self-esteem and no self-love and was totally unprepared to go to Boston as I then proceeded to do. When I got to Boston, uh, I stayed with a girlfriend of mine, and that night she said, why don't we go out and have a good time? Now, at that time, there was a song out by Janis Joplin, Janis Joplin, and it was me and Bobby McGee. And it, I loved that song. And in that song, she talked about freedom's just another word, but nothing else to lose. And I used to think about that. God, what do I have to lose? I don't have anything to lose. 
19 years old, I was strong, I was, you know, I could do a lot of things. So that night, I went out and I drank dimes. You know what dimes are? Little glasses of beer, cheap beer. And I had dimes and I kept on drinking dimes and dimes. And I saw a fellow across the bar and I looked at him and I immediately fell in love. Now, I want, I want you to know when I hit Boston that I was really very puritanical. That night, I was not puritanical. <laughs> I found out what love was all about. I found out drunk, and I found out just that way. And I woke up the next morning, and I threw up, and I couldn't remember the night before. So when I came into Alcoholics Anonymous, I came in with the same attitude that it had happened to me that night. I came in with the ism. I am a duck out of water without alcohol. I love alcohol. Alcohol makes life easy. Alcohol takes away the pain. Alcohol alleviates pressure. Alcohol makes the sunshine. Alcohol does everything in the world for me. And so that night, my whole life, the next 13 years, was born. I'm a party girl. I love a party. I can't tell you how much I love to party. I was not a stay-at-home drunk, and as I tell you from picking up the first drink, I was an alcoholic at the onset. There was no social drinking with me. It didn't take a long time. It was sitting right there waiting for me. The big book talks about being cunning, baffling, and I don't think that the alcohol is cunning and baffling. The alcoholic is cunning and baffling. I um, want to read something to you now from the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I hope you'll just bear with me because it's going to take about three minutes. It's something that has tremendous significance for me, and it really spells out my life before AA and in AA. And it's in the back of the big book under the appendices, and it's called spiritual experience. And I read this to you because when I talked about being belligerent and intolerant, this is what the big book says about that. The terms spiritual experience and spiritual awakening are used many times in this book, which upon careful reading shows that the personality change sufficient to bring about recovery from alcoholism has manifested itself among us in many different forms. Yet it is true that our first printing gave many readers the impression that these personality changes or religious experiences must be in the nature of sudden and spectacular upheavals. Happily for everyone, this conclusion is erroneous. In the first few chapters, a number of sudden revolutionary changes are described. Though it was not our intention to create such an impression, many alcoholics have nevertheless concluded that in order to recover, they must acquire an immediate and overwhelming God consciousness, followed at once by a vast change in feeling and outlook. Among our rapidly growing membership of thousands of alcoholics, such transformations, though frequent, are by no means the rule. Most of our experiences are what the psychologist William James calls the educational variety because they develop slowly over a period of time. Quite often, friends of the newcomer are aware of the difference long before he is himself. He finally realizes that he has undergone a profound alteration in his reaction to life, that such a change could hardly have been brought about by himself alone. What often takes place in a few months could seldom have been accomplished by years of self-discipline. With few exceptions, our members find that they have tapped an unsuspected 
inner resource, which they greatly identify with their own conception of a power greater than themselves. Most of us think this awareness of a power greater than ourselves is the essence of spiritual experience. Our more religious members call it God consciousness. Most emphatically, we wish to say that any alcoholic capable of honestly facing his problems in the light of our experiences can recover, can recover, provided he does not close his mind to all spiritual concepts. He can only be defeated by an attitude of intolerance or belligerent denial. We find that no one need have difficulty with the spirituality of the program. Willingness, honesty, and open-mindedness are the essentials of recovery, but these are indispensable. There is a principle which is a bar against all information, which is proof against all arguments, and which cannot fail to keep a man in everlasting ignorance. That principle is contempt prior to investigation. So when I came to AA, I didn't believe in God. I had no God whatsoever. I used to mock your God. I believed in the old God, and I didn't like the old God. The old God was not working in my life. When I ran away to Boston, uh, I got a job uh, working for a major airline, and I worked for that airline for 12 years out of Logan Airport in Boston. I thought this was the greatest thing since the invention of sprays. I mean, if you are an alcoholic and you want to fly around the world first class, it only costs $9.45. And if you wanted to drink first class, it costs nothing. So you could sit there and pretend that you were paying, and pretend that you were somebody, and pretend that you were going someplace that you think was going to be absolutely the most precious gift in the world, and you'd be so drunk by the time you got there, and you'd wake up in the morning and didn't even know who picked you up. I did that for many years. I've traveled the world, and I can't tell you a lot about it. <laughs> I see the nightly news, and I'm so grateful that they show me cities that I've been to. <laughs> I have deja vu about it. It was, uh, it was a time of uh, terrible uh, uh, agitation for me in my early years in the, in the airlines uh, because I, I wanted so desperately to be so right. I wanted so desperately to be loved, to feel loved, to be loved, to get loved. And on the other hand, I had this terrible belligerence and, and denial, and, I, and, I, and I, I love the fast life, the fast lane. God, give me a fast car, man, womb, I'll tell you. You know, I won't say a fast man, that's not nice. <laughs> but you get the idea. <laughs> and I just love to be on the move. I love I loved cocktail lounges, nice cocktail lounges. I loved to go drink and eat at the best places. And I loved to be in the worst. I could never understand that. I loved to go slumming, I used to call it. Listen, my mouth has cleared out the worst bar in Boston. Dock workers got up and walked out. That's the truth. I didn't know I knew such words, but I was mad. I was having a passionate fight with my boyfriend. When I do that, it was knock down, drag out. So when I, when I was there, uh, I would run home to my parents and try to live with them, and then I would tell my father I didn't believe in God, and my father, oh, my father would go, he would, skin would crawl. And then they would sit down and we'd have little family talks. Now, dear, am 
my father would say, take the gum out of your mouth. My mother would say, sit like a lady. They'd say, why did you dye your hair red? Why are you wearing those clothes? What's happened to you? And then I'd have enough of it, I'd jump up and I'd say, you're still the same. And I would leave, and I would go to Boston and be with my friends and tell them how wicked my parents were. Mean. Just mean. You're mean. And this, this back and forth was killing me. I can't tell you how it was killing me. I, wanted to, I just wanted everything to be Madison Avenue. You know, I wanted it to be just the total picture of the wonderful family. And it wasn't that way. It just wasn't that way. And so uh, I, did the, uh, I did the scene, and I did you know, all the fun things. And when the fun things turned bad, I would, I would just absolutely die and say, well, we'll give it another chance. And I can remember going into all kinds of churches and praying and trying to talk to priests and trying to talk to people and never knowing what was exactly what was wrong with me. I couldn't understand what was wrong with me. I just knew every time I picked up a drink, something was going to happen to me. I didn't know what was going to happen to me. I didn't know if I was going to be flying to Florida. I didn't know if I was going to be, you know, going to a party on the Cape. I didn't know if I was going to be, I didn't know what was going to happen every time I picked up a drink. Sometimes it was exciting. Sometimes I really looked forward to that, you know, that challenge of where am I going to end up next. I just never knew. And I, I, lived in, I, lived, I lived in fear. I lived in fear of people finding out about me, about my family finding out about me. I lived in fear that, you know, was I capable of doing my job? Was I, you know, I'm a workaholic as well as an alcoholic. I'm an, I can't stand at, the, at, at still. I've got to climb that ladder. I've got to be somebody. It was a need. It was a driving need to be somebody just couldn't just be me. I didn't know what being me was. And if I climbed that ladder and I was successful and I did these projects and I put my, got my name into books where women's names had not been in the airline industry. And my friends were saying, you know, don't you see, you, you've got all this talent and this capability and, and don't you understand? And I said, no, I don't understand. What are you talking about? I, I just didn't understand about me. I had no inkling about alcoholism. I had no inkling other than when I picked up that drink, I was in trouble and something was going to happen. And every time I wanted that drink, I didn't care about the results. I didn't care about the consequences. I didn't care about anything. I wanted that alcohol. I loved it. So from there, I uh, met a fellow, and it was a hot July day. And he was uh, carrying a, uh, a case of ice-cold beer on the beach. And I said to myself, I've got to meet this man. <laughs> so I pranced around his blanket a little bit, <laughs> threw sand in his face, and he asked if I would like to have a beer. And a year later, I married him. I didn't want to get married. One of my biggest problems has been that I have problems with interpersonal relationships. I don't know how to be with you. I don't know how to tell you that what my feelings are. I don't know how to communicate to you what I feel is right because I'm afraid that you're going to leave me. I'm afraid that you're going to just come out in an uproar and you're going to give me a hard time and I won't, I won't know how to stand up to you. I have terrible problems with this. I've had major problems with this my whole life. I ran away from my mother and father. And then when I, when I got married to, to Jack Sullivan, by the way, <laughs> was married to Jack for five years. And Jack went to school while I worked. and. Uh, when I felt as though uh, I had that commitment. I always feel as though when I have a commitment, I have got to do that commitment whether I die doing it or not. I just never knew that I could say, I don't have to do this. I never knew that. I'd always just about die, kill myself, break my back, to do and what I was supposed to do, quote unquote. 
So I got Jack through school, and as uh, soon as Jack got through school, I, I left. I couldn't even tell him that I, that I was leaving. We were down in the Cape at my sister's home, and I just never went back to Boston. I never went back. And I just, I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't face him. Didn't know how to do that. In an alcoholic roar, I could tell him exactly what was wrong. And in his alcoholic roar, he could tell me what was wrong back. It was a very alcoholic marriage. After, uh, after that, I moved down to the Cape, and I then got into, uh, I was 29 years of age at that time, and I really thought that I, I deserved to have a good time because I sacrificed these five years with this man. And what did I get? He got the college degree. So I really started to party hardy, as the expression was, and I loved it in the 60s and the early 70s when they had the expression, let it rip. <laughs> and I let it rip. And I just loved it because it was, again, what I thought was total freedom. Everything that I had been looking for, I finally found in Alcoholics Anonymous. The big book of Alcoholics Anonymous talks about the alcoholic being a tornado running around in people's lives. And I have run people's lives down to the ground. I have run people down to the ground, all because of the self-centeredness. The root of the disease of the alcoholic is the self-centeredness. And I thought that I, life owed me something because of what I did. I had no understanding of the values, the mores, and the ethics of life. AA has taught me everything that I have learned in 11 years that I just never picked up before or had an understanding of. From the Cape, I got into auto accidents. I totaled my sister's car. I totaled my car. I mean, I want you to know that when I drove, I had a lead foot. I just, uh, I, was running, I was running crazy. I would get in at like 3 o'clock in the morning from the bars in the Cape, and then I would get up at 5.30 and drive or either fly up to Logan Airport. I was constantly on the go. I never slept. I was, it had alcohol in my system all the time. Constantly, constantly on the go. I couldn't sit still. I couldn't sit still. You couldn't get me to rest. You couldn't get me to do anything. Maybe once a month, I'd take a weekend and just flop out because my body couldn't take it anymore. My mind, I was insane. I know I was insane. And yet I was continuing up the ladder in my business. So I was, the only time that I didn't, I wasn't crazy is when I could think about business. The only time that I could have relief is that when I got into business. It's the only time that I had relief because when I wasn't working, then I was thinking all these crazy thoughts. I had hatred, I had blame, I had resentment. I was imbued with hate. I reeked of it. So from the, from the Cape, my family thought that it was best after a few lost accidents that uh, they moved me. So they, they, my mother and father uh, were living in Florida at that time. They, they took a geographic to uh, Fort Lauderdale. And uh, so they decided that their lovely daughter should be uh, moved up north of Boston because then she wouldn't get into so much trouble. Well, needless to say, you know what happened up there. I got into trouble. And uh, I didn't total any cars up there, though. So uh, one morning, my mother called me up and said that she had divorced my father after 32 years of marriage because of alcoholism. And she said that she was lonely and would I consider moving down to Fort Lauderdale since I was telling her that my life was such a mess. Now, I want you to know that I hated my mother with a hate that I have never known since. I hated her. I despised her. And I said to her, all right, mother, I'll, I'll move down with you. And so I quit the airlines. You can see what a good shape I was in. I quit the airlines and I moved down because I was going to go back to college and get my degree and I was going to live again on Madison Avenue in this, in this home and everybody was going to be happy. Well, my mother's a teacher. 
And when she would come home from school, she'd open up her vodka bottle, and so I'd open up my bottle. And I'd say within the period of the four months that I lived with my mother, maybe six months, that I packed and unpacked a total of probably 20 times. And I would go to my grandmother's. Now I'm 32 years of age, and this is the behavior. This is a grown-up woman. This is a woman who's responsible, has responsible jobs, and yet I'm, 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 I'm carrying on like a two-year-old. And my mother would come over to my grandmother's, knock on the door, beat on the door, and say, please come home, dear. So I would go home, dear. And then we'd start this big Irish Donnybrook between the two of us that looked like World War III. And finally, uh, a friend of mine called and said, would I like to, in the meantime, I want to tell you that uh, life had really gone downhill. Uh, <laughs> I had become a latent hippie. During the time that everybody was a hippie, I was still a Boston preppy. And I felt I missed that, you know? So I became a flower child in the 70s. And I ran around with those type of people, you know? I was on the back of motorbikes and I was, you know, I mean, God knows what. So, uh, and I would drink on the beach in Fort Lauderdale and pass out and, you know, I mean, it was very exciting. It wasn't like flying first class to Hong Kong, I'll tell you. So, um, from... From this, uh, from this experience, a friend called up and said, would you like to come up to Delray, which is just north of Fort Lauderdale, and start a new division in this company? And I said, oh my God, yes, I need to work. I, I really need to get back into the stream, and I know my life is going to take on again and be okay. So I got up to uh, Delray, and I was good for exactly one month. And then, you know, birds of a feather flock together. And so I got up there and uh, I got in with this uh, very ritzy Palm Beach group. And I tell you, well, honey, this alcoholic thought she had died and gone to heaven. <laughs> Parties every night at all these wonderful clubs and all these long dresses and all these lovely people. And oh my God, it was just quite lovely. I did the season. <laughs> And I was doing that, again, getting in at 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock in the morning. I had just started a brand new division in a company. I was going back to school taking 19 credit hours and drinking. You don't think I was ready for an insane asylum? I was nutso. I really was nutso. I don't, today, when I relax, I say to myself, where did I get that energy? I mean, my God, if I do the dishes, it wears me out today. <laughs> so from there, I just, I really, uh, I, just, I just didn't know again. I said, how did, what happened again? Why, why is all this happening? I don't understand it because I really started getting into deep depressions now from the alcoholism. And my grandmother, who I absolutely dearly loved, who was the woman that, that I accepted love from and gave love to, and I'm very grateful for my grandmother. Very, very grateful for this woman in my life. And she lived in, in Pompano Beach, which is between my mother and me, which was very helpful in those days. So my grandmother, it was Christmas time, and she said that she wanted me to go to Mass with her. Now, let me tell you, God and JC in the group, no way. But I loved my grandmother, and I said to her, Grammy, I'll go with you, because I just knew I wanted to make that woman happy. And when I got to the... Um, it wasn't even a church. It was a uh, school schoolroom because they were building the church and there were just these little chairs. And I don't know 
But something came over me that had not come over me before in my entire life. And I got on my knees, and for the first time in my life, I said, I don't know what you are, how you are, or where you are. But I'm feeling something, and I'm asking for help, because I don't know what's wrong with me. I, I don't know how much longer I can continue. I don't know how much strength I have. They were always, I was always very strong mentally, and I've always been strong physically. I was always an athlete. And I always had good mental prowess because I could memorize things real good all the time. And I just knew that some these things were breaking down. I couldn't remember things anymore. I was getting things mixed up. Physically, my body I knew was still all right, but I was just in so much pain. I carried so much pain in, in my gut and in my head. My head never shut off. Never once shut off. It would go like crazy. So I asked this presence. Presence. Six months later, I got a telephone call from my mother. My mother had had a particularly bad Thanksgiving. And after that Thanksgiving, she walked into the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous. That took a tremendous amount of courage for my mother, because my mother is quite a lady, even though she's a wild banshee. <laughs> and I knew that she must have, now I know what exactly it took for her to do that. Today I have great admiration for my mother as well as love. But at that time, when she called me up, I picked up the phone and she said, would you like to go to a retreat in North Palm Beach? And I said, no. And I slammed the phone down. The belligerence and the denial. Spiritual experience, spiritual awakening. What makes these things happen? Willingness. The key is willingness. And I had no willingness. I had nothing at all. And I slammed that phone down. And then five seconds later, I picked that phone up and I called my mother and said, Mother, I would like to go. And this is what I call the gift. Each one of us has received a very, very special gift to be sitting here tonight. I was given that gift because if I had had time to think, I would never have called my mother. The big book of Alcoholics Anonymous tells us that we can't get well on self-knowledge. It tells us many times in, in the exact phrase, you cannot get well on self-knowledge. So it was not my self-knowledge that picked up that phone. It wasn't anything that I did. It was something that was working through me that I didn't know, something mystical, something powerful. So when I went to that retreat, it was for all AA members. And I met a gal by the name of Jill, and she looks very much like a lot of you ladies do tonight. Bright-eyed, clear, clean, wholesome, smile on her face, lovely. And I asked Jill if she would tell me about her alcoholism. And she did what every single one of us does the best, and that is carry the message one-on-one. -on -one. She gave me the 12th step. She told me about Alcoholics Anonymous by sharing her experience, strength, and hope. And when she got through sharing her experience, strength, and hope, I knew I was an alcoholic. There was no doubt in my mind. The monkey came off my back. I knew what was wrong with me. There it was, alcoholism. So, I couldn't tell my mother, of course. <laughs> so I waited three weeks while I went out and got a wonderful tan, bleached my hair blonde. I was always doing something to my hair in those days. 
bleached my hair blonde, and I walked into an AA meeting. I wanted to look uptown, honey. So I walked into a little place called Central House in Delray Beach, Florida. And I walked in and I met a friend that's been a friend of mine now for 11 years. And he said to me, you're very angry, aren't you? God, how did he know? I was the perfect actress. How did he see that? How did he sense that? My God, my whole body language, my whole face was tight and frizzled. So I walked into Alcoholics Anonymous, and I dearly loved it. I went to meetings, 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 but I couldn't understand God. What is this God thing? I'd walk out of meetings on the third step because I couldn't stand to hear about God. And I got sober in the Bible Belt, and let me tell you, they love to talk about J.C. That is why I think Alcoholics Anonymous is so important that we carry through with our traditions, that we give the newcomer every opportunity to sit in that room and to listen with an open mind so that the newcomer can have a chance to identify and find out if they want to come back. And I did, because I sat there and I wanted to come back, and I came back and came back. But there was still something very, very, very wrong in my life. Very, very wrong. I did the fourth step, I did the fifth step, I was doing everything, but I couldn't understand this God thing. Dr. Tebow, a Class A trustee of Alcoholics Anonymous, one of the early Class A trustees and a psychiatrist, wrote in a pamphlet on ego deflation, that there are three surrenders that the alcoholic makes. The first surrender is to the alcohol, the second surrender is to the fellowship, and the third surrender is to the total program, the total program. And I had surrendered the first two. I had surrendered the alcohol and I had surrendered to the fellowship, but I had not completed the total program because I had not and understanding, nor did I know about this God thing. So I was still acting with the ism. And in my third year, I got into a heck of a lot of trouble. I met a man, what else? <laughs> he was a wild and crazy cowboy. And he was schizophrenic and everything else that they call those people. as well as being an alcoholic and everything else. And uh, I knew I was deep in trouble because my behavior really started to go downhill. I saw myself acting in ways that I had not even acted when I was drinking, and I was three years sober. And finally, when he was threatening my life and it came to the point that it was very, very serious, I had to leave town. The law couldn't protect me, nobody could protect me, and I had to leave town. That was the only thing that they told me. So I had to move down again to where my grandmother. And when I got down to Pompano, somebody said to me, I think you'd like a meeting. It's on Monday night. It's about the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I was ready. I was ready for anything. And I walked into this meeting and I met a man by the name of Wesley Parrish. Wesley had been sober many, many, many years. Wesley loved me unconditionally. And he taught me about the 12 steps and also about the 12 traditions. It was there in that group that I finally found that inner resource that I just read to you about in the spiritual experience and, and awakening. You see, everything that I had been looking for in my life was inside me. The big book of Alcoholics Anonymous calls it an inner resource. And that resource is available to me at any time that I choose to call on that resource. I didn't have to call it God. I didn't have to call it JC. I didn't have to call it anything. I could call it an inner resource, a higher power. And then I started to trust. Trust came very, very, very hard to me. 
I started to trust and I started to listen and I came and I came to and I came to believe. Wesley told me that the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous were written for me to have a personal recovery. And I did them. And I did have a personal recovery. At long last, I had had the three surrenders. But there was something radically wrong in my life still because I didn't know how to get along with you still. I didn't know how. And Wesley told me that if I took those 12 traditions and that I applied them to my daily life, that I would learn how to get along in this world as a child of God, to love you as a child of God. And he talked about being autonomous, that I must be autonomous, that if I was to have a group conscience, it was between me and my higher power and somebody that was going to be valuable and useful to me. He said that I must be self-supporting through my own contributions. And the last and the most favorite and treasured is the fact that I was to now learn how to take principles before personalities. I didn't know principles before personalities because I had always put your personality first. I had always run you down. I had always gone and put a knife to your heart because I had to beat you before you beat me. And I had to learn this total new way of life of incorporating these principles. If I were to talk to you, I had to talk to you about the principle, the issue. I could not bring into the, into the subject the personality. Because when I did that, I got into heated debate, I got into arguments, I got into resentments, I got into hate, I got into blame, and I felt rotten like I had had a hangover. It was a whole new world. I felt like Audrey Huxley. It was a whole new world, the traditions. And from there, I had graduated from college finally. I worked my way through college. I mean, I've had alcoholic cars in sobriety. I have put four starters in one car. <laughs> finally, I had to buy a new starter because each starter was, they didn't have the teeth. They have teeth. You know, starters have teeth. I never do that. You find that out when you buy them. I was broke, and I finally, I got myself through school. I put braces on my teeth. I did things to make me feel good. I did things to make me have self-worth so that it would raise my level of self-esteem. And I kept on going to meetings and I kept on applying the principles of these programs. And I found myself being sober four years, five years, and I still didn't have the job. I was, in fact, what happened to me was that at one, for a year and a half I cleaned houses. I had just graduated college and I didn't know where I, what I wanted to do or how I wanted to do it and I didn't, I was so confused and the next thing you know I don't know how it happened but it happened and I ended up that I became a maid and I started cleaning houses. And I want to tell you something, that's when I learned about humility. For somebody that had had such a great ego like I did, that was able to fly and do all the magnificent things that God had given me a long time ago. To show up at somebody's house with a cleaning rag in my hand was a little bit of humility. But it was there that I learned something very, very precious. It was there that I learned that I am Cheryl Ann Burke. No matter where I go, what I do, I take me with me. And if I have the God of my understanding with me, and I have my self-esteem, and I have my program, I don't care what I do on this earth. It does not matter. That's what that program has given me, and it will give you, and it has given you. Those part of the promises that are in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And so after I did this, Wesley said to me, why don't you apply for the job up in New York? And so I did. I put my application in, I sent my resume up, and I applied for the General Service Office of Alcoholics Anonymous in New York. And finally, they sent me a letter like about a year later, and they said that they'd love to hear from me when I fly up for an interview. And I was so excited because I was six years sober, 
and I had the opportunity to speak at the General Service Office on my sixth anniversary. And if I said, if I die and go to heaven, I said, that's one of the greatest things that's ever happened to me. And when I interviewed for two days, you interviewed for the job up there. And when I interviewed for that job, I knew deep in my gut that I had that job. I just knew I was, I belonged there. And when I got back, I got a letter that said, no, thank you. We'll keep you on file. We're hiring somebody else. <laughs> and I knew something was wrong with my feeling. I said, and I trusted my feeling because I'm, I'm learning how to do those things in Alcoholics Anonymous. I learned to trust that voice, that voice that speaks within me. So seven months later, I got a telephone call and they said they had another position available and they, they really were still interested in when I put my hat in the ring. So I put my hat in the ring, only this time I said, don't do it again. <laughs> Once is enough. So anyway, I got the job. And I've had the opportunity to serve you. I've had the opportunity to give perhaps one-fifth of what you have given me in my life. There's just no way that I could ever, ever repay you for what you've given me. It's been a tremendous experience because I went up there with sand in my shoes. I had been out of the professional business for a long time. And I had to learn how to sharpen up my skills because I was in New York and it was fast and they were fast and they knew what they were doing and I was a little slow. And I was in a city teeming with millions of people and I was used to being on a beach with maybe five. And it was a whole new way of life, a whole new way of life. And I am very, very grateful for that, for that total opportunity of meeting new AA people, getting a new AA group, moving to a new city, moving to a new job. And it was there in Alcoholics Anonymous that uh, uh, I met a man, and uh, this time uh, it worked out well. But it didn't work out well at first because I met him at, at conference time. And he didn't drink, but he didn't go to AA. And we dated for a year, and we had a very tumultuous year. Because I was trying to apply the principles of Alcoholics Anonymous, and the more I did that, the more he would rebel in another way. And so I knew I had to end that relationship because it wasn't healthy, and I wasn't going anywhere, and neither would the relationship. I wasn't about to settle anymore in my life. And so I told him, that was the end, and when I did things in those days, I used to cut people off like they were an iceberg, you know? They'd float out to sea for all I cared. I was mean, hard-hearted Hannah. And so, I let that relationship go, and I was again working in the office, and life was going on, and yet something still was not right in my life. I had not seen my mother in seven years. I had to detach with love so that I could have my own program and learn how to be me. And I still had a lot of hate, and I knew that I had to apply the law of forgiveness. So I started working on the seventh step and I asked the God of my understanding to give me that forgiveness. And as it was, I had to have major surgery, and I had major surgery, in fact, uh, May, May 4th last year. And before I went into major surgery, I called up my mother, and I said, Mother, I'm going to have major surgery, and I would like to know if you would fly to New York and take care of me. She was delighted. She flew up to New York, and she took care of me. And after I recuperated for a week, she flew me down to Fort Lauderdale and we spent three more weeks together. It was a very, very healing time. It was a wonderful time. We have now started on a journey of mother and daughter, both in AA, learning how to have respect, space, love, and admiration for one another. AA gave me that. So after I returned from my mother, I called up my father because I had not seen my father in nine years. 
My father lives in a seaside town called Seabrook, New Hampshire, and I called him up and I said, Dad, I'd like to see you, and he was absolutely thrilled. He flew, I flew to Boston, he drove to Boston, and then we both drove down to my sister's in Cape Cod. And with my sister and her husband and my father and myself, we cruised around the Cape and the islands for four days on her boat. That, again, was the most memorable time because it allowed me to have a time with my father to heal and to ask of his forgiveness for my attitude. I have two terrific parents, and I'm so pleased that this program has given me a chance to see that while they're still alive. But you see, if it weren't for friends like you that told me, Cheryl Ann, you have not completed your, your journey. You have not completed your program of recovery because you haven't done these things. I have to hear the truth because, again, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous says you can't get well on self-will and on self-knowledge. And so that self-knowledge was destroying me. It was killing me. I still carried it in my gut, and here I was nine years sober. So I completed those two cycles in my life, and that again has just been its so rewarding. It's been very, very rewarding. So then I came home from my father and I said, I have to write to Robert, and I have to write a letter of amends. The first paragraph and the eighth step in the 12 and 12, the very first paragraph says, that this step was written so that you could have the best possible relations in your life. The best possible relations in your life. That's how it starts out. So I knew that I owed this man an apology for my behavior. So I wrote him a ninth step and he returned with a beautiful letter. In the meantime, he had moved to Florida. And then he called up and he said he was coming to New York on business the very next week. <laughs> so my knight in shining armor flew into New York and he told me that when I broke up with him, that the only place that he could go to find relief was Alcoholics Anonymous because he was an alcoholic. So for a year and a half, he had become very, very active in Alcoholics Anonymous. And he really almost didn't even have to tell me when we got together and had dinner and lunches and dinner and lunches because it showed in his attitude, it showed in the way he was living. He was almost totally a different person. I, I was astonished at the change, but I should know this program changed me. So I married him. <laughs> we got married on a boat called Romance. that sailed up the St. John's River going up north to Tallahassee on a bright, sunny Florida day. And I want to tell you that we've had a long-distance relationship and that this past month I've really decided that I don't want to live that way. I have waited 15 years to find someone with whom I can live on a daily basis and love and learn to grow because that's what you do when you are with people that you love. You learn to grow. And so I gave my letter of resignation in two weeks ago at the General Service Office, and I will be leaving at the end of June and moving down to Florida. I don't know where that's going to take me. I, I love to work. I don't know what I'll be doing. I, I, I just don't know. I just know that I'm going with God in my heart and with you and the principles that you have taught me. And then I know that when I get there, there'll be AAs that are going to open up their arms and they're going to say, hi, welcome. Because that's the way you are.
And today, I love journeys. I love journeys. I just, it was like when I was drinking. I just, when, when I picked up that drink, I never knew what was going to happen. And today, on a daily basis, I just love it because I never know what's going to happen. What are you going to do now? So I'm going to Florida. And I'm really looking forward to it. I'm quite happy about it. And there you've had my AA story for right now. And I have just so grateful for your attention and for your love that you have given me tonight in my stay here. And may God bless you and may you walk the AA way a day at a time for a very long time. Thank you.